السلام عليكم وعليكم السلام ورحمه الله وعليكم السلام ورحمه الله وعليكم السلام ورحمه الله Alrighty. <clears throat> okay, Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Na'amaduhu anasalli ala rasulihi al-kareem. Amma ba'd, we express our praise and gratitude to Allah Ta'ala. We seek blessings upon the Prophet, peace be upon him. Alrighty, so continuing along uh, our exploration of those portions of Surah Al-Baqarah, let's look back at the lines that we are exploring. Whoops. So... So, Nod, if you can see the Qur'an or something. Anyone? Uh, can anybody hear me? Yeah, okay. Yes. Alrighty. So, so we've gone through the first questions here that, that, uh, that uh, Allah Ta'ala is addressing to the children of Israel in general, the Jews of Medina in particular. And, and so the first portion was what? That uh, in Ayah 40, they're being told, practice your religion. In Ayah 41, complete your religion. What is the completion of your religion? Embrace the Prophet, peace be upon him. Then Ayah 40, and also in Ayah 41, um, you should be the first to embrace it, not the first to reject it, and don't sell it off you know, for, for a, a, a small gain. And we also saw the evolution from, from Wa'iyaya uh, Farhabun, Iyaya Farhabun to Iyaya Fattakun. Yeah. And so there's also this evolution that they're being prescribed in their relationship with Allah. And I mean, we discussed also briefly yesterday, their Sharia would be becoming easier. So <clears throat> you must stand for truth, you must stand for integrity, and then you must also join the Ummah. With those people who do ruku. And now, what do we have? Uh, Nabil is asking, can you explain the farhabun and fattakun again? So farhabun, we are saying that in the, in the context of the Torah, the depiction of, of, of God is, is very fierce. And in the context of the Quran, the depiction of the God shifts to one where the default is Rahma. And the relationship with God in the Torah in this language is to be fearful, terrorized by him. And in here, in the context of the Quran, it is to have taqwa. Taqwa in contemporary Arabic, uh, uh, Islamic text is often translated as fear of God. And, and um, you might remember from the first uh, course that I was translating it as shielding yourself with Allah. And the end result being that you're being God conscious. So now I have 44. 
So are you commanding other people to character, to virtue? Uh, and you're forgetting yourselves. Okay. And you do tilawat, you're reading the book. It makes no sense. Do you have any sense? Uh, the fun part of this ayah, okay, straightforward, what is this ayah saying? Are you calling other people to truth, but you're not practicing it yourself? And so in their context, if we add it, if we, if we merge this with the preceding ayahs, what is it saying? You're calling your people to truth. And the completion of truth and, and, and good conduct is to embrace the prophet, peace be upon him. Okay. But you yourself are not doing it. But we also have this very, very fascinating point right here. Okay. How does it change if we say What's the difference between the two? Anyone who has some Arabic-ish in your language. versus so it would be uh, the other way around. Yeah, so it would be reciting tilawat versus, uh, 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 what are we saying, uh, versus reading, okay, reading with understanding, reading to recite versus reading to understand. And so here's where now we're beginning to especially see possible application of our text today. That if we look at the, the predominant approaches in our community uh, to the Quran, you know, one of course is recitation. And recitation is central to our tradition, right? That is what's being handed off from the Prophet, peace on to the Sahaba, to everyone else. Uh, but how much is there of actual reflection? There, the number begins to dwindle especially in contrast to other things like calligraphy and such. And so, so a point to consider pulling from this ayah is that what goes hand in hand, an emphasis on recitation without meaning goes hand in hand with the loss of character. That if there is a focus on reading and then practicing what we spoke of as transformative learning, then a natural consequence of that should be a focus on character, on bir, on virtue. If you remove that, then the practice of Islam becomes much more, in our language, ritualistic. And other things like character, justice, etc., begins to get, the importance of that begins to get lost. And this is what we're seeing here. And then the next point, <clears throat> as reinforcement of yourself, what is Allah Ta'ala prescribing? So seek help in sabr and salah. What do you think? How do sabr and salah relate to each other? Almost always in the Quran is zakah and salah. You know, but what would be the relationship between sabr and salah? And to make that point all the more 
Interesting, if we go to Ayat al-Birr, we also find something similar there. And feel free to use the microphone or the chat box to explore what would be the relationship between sabr and salah. You have, have to have patience in order to come to salah first. You have to give up a lot of distractions. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I like especially the, the, the latter part of how you described it. You have to give up a, a, a lot of distractions. And, and so yeah, both, you, uh, both you, Dr. Ghazi and Basir are mentioning having uh, that you have to have patience for Salah. And, and another way to think about this is the struggle of the establishment of deen requires discipline and sabr. That's a gigantic um, um, uh, concept. If, if uh, Dr. Malahad, you can make it simple, although I am agreeing with, with your, the point you're making. So here uh, in uh, Ayah 177, often nicknamed Ayat al-Bir, well, I shouldn't say often, but in, in some circles nicknamed Ayat al-Bir, the Ayat of Consciousness, to be patient with what you're praying for to come to life. Uh, that, I think, uh, Omar al-Khadr is a very important point as well. Here, we are taught what? Actually, why don't I just make my window bigger so you can see more. Then it vanished. Technology. Okay, here it is. Okay. Leis al-Birra. It is not righteousness. Okay. Uh, that you face east or west, but righteous is the one who does the following, and we have three parts to this. Okay. And so I will stop that share for a second. So what again, what are we looking at? We're looking at the relationship, a relationship between sabr and salah. And so if we look in Ayah 2, 177, we said that bir, righteousness or virtue, is not in kind of going to come from facing east or west, right? It is a farth, it is part of the farth of salah that you face your 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 prayer to the qibla or if you have no clue where the qibla is you you make uh, some sort of a guess okay so bir is number one as we're going to see it's coming from belief um, and then from there giving and then from there discipline or what we're going to call fortitude. Now, uh, let's go back to the ayah to see it in practice, and then I'll go back to that screen in just a moment. Hopefully, it will not cause you whiplash by going back and forth between screens. Okay, so bir is not that you turn your faces towards east or west, meaning, in simple language, having precision in facing qibla is not going to give you character. But bir is where? The one who believes on Allah and the last day and the angels and the books and the messengers and the prophets. And okay, so that's part one. We said belief. And what is belief giving you in the realm of aqidah? It's giving you your intentions. The one who gives their wealth despite their love for it, right? Or out of love for him, out of love for Allah. 
to whom? To the relatives, orphans, the needies, the travelers, those who ask, and for freeing slaves. Okay. So we said one aspect of character of virtue is to be giving. Think back to when we spoke about the attributes of the people of Taqwa. We spoke about infaq, fi sabilillah. Infaq is to give yourself to the point of exhaustion. That's what the people of Taqwa do. Okay. Then <clears throat> the third part, those who establish salah, give zakah, keep their promises when they promise, who persevere in poverty and hardship and battle. Okay. And so what is this? This is what we're calling discipline and fortitude. So sabr in Urdu versus sabr in Arabic. Sabr in Urdu is more patience. Sabr in Arabic is fortitude. And then what is the consequence of this? These are the people of truth. And this is also another description of the people of Taqwa. So we spoke about Taqwa one way with the six attributes of the people of Taqwa at the beginning of the surah. Now we're defining Taqwa a different way where we're making it synonymous with virtue, synonymous with character. So to go back to our whiteboard. So what is the result of all this? You're a person of truth and you're a person of taqwa. And so what are we saying is common among sabr and salah? That sabr is a type of fortitude in the sense that come what may, I'm going to keep moving forward. And salah is regardless of my situation, I'm going to keep making my prayers. Okay. I'm in positions of highs. I'm going to keep making my prayers at the very least motivated by gratitude, but better than that, because Allah Ta'ala is saying to, if I'm in periods of lows, I'm going to keep making my prayers, right? So Salah is sabr in action. Okay. All right. Make sense? Somebody nod just to give me the impression that you're learning and paying attention. Okay, good. Okay. Very good, inshallah. Sorry, let me just quickly save the screen so you can have it for the notes. Save. And so now let's go back to our ayah in Surah Al-Baqarah. And while going to that, Ramya would say, I agree. Ramya says, I would agree with what the others have said, but I also think each of Salah is being a unit of time. Nice. So Salah can also be an indication of time passing while waiting. Which one needs over that? I think it's also very, very insightful, mashallah. Yeah, I think all your answers are, are uh, the answers everyone gave are correct. And I was giving that also link. Once again, hopefully I'm not going to cause you a seizure by doing this high-speed scroll. Okay. So, seek help in Sabr and Salah. But it is hard. <coughs> Excuse me. It is not just hard. The word that's being used, 
lekabiraton. This is immensely huge. Except if you have khushur. So <clears throat> how do we define khushur? Khushur would be translated here as humbly submissive. So humble devotion. It's not quite the opposite of arrogance. I was referring to uh, in, in when we were speaking of the story of of of, um, of Shaitan, you know, the accursed devil. We spoke of him being hiding behind arrogance, and we spoke of Hushua essentially as a cure for arrogance. So it's not quite an opposite as much as it's a cure for arrogance. It's also a prevention for arrogance. So. We're saying it's hard for me to actually gain benefit from sabr and salah. I might be someone who's making my five daily prayers, yet I'm not really benefiting from them. I might be someone who is quiet and persevering through whatever it is that Allah Ta'ala tests me with, and yet I might not be growing from it. Okay, so, so Malahat is giving the summary of Dr. Farah's teachings of, of, uh, of, uh, of, of Bani Israel. Okay, that's, uh, we'll get to it, inshallah. Okay, so, so see the point we're making? That it's not merely the matter of, of Salah and Sabr. The goal here is to derive benefit from them. Not just in Akhirah. Okay? If I make my prayers, inshallah, I'm going to get rewarded in Akhirah. But also what we're saying is, what else can this give me and so think of it as giving me spiritual backbone strength internally and so the first step to make sure I have that or the or one of the three steps the parts to need to make sure I can benefit is to be humbly devoted so now what does that mean I'm making my prayers with this disposition this intention this attitude of humble devotion to Allah. And I'm persevering through whatever hits me, not in the sense of, aha, I can take it all, I laugh in the face of danger, I think that's what Simba said to, to, um, to Mufasa or to Nala, but, um, uh, but it's, okay, whatever Allah chooses to hit me with, you know, in this type of humble devotion, I'm going to keep walking forward. That's one of the three. The next of the three is to have the consciousness that you know you're going to meet Allah. And so all of us intellectually, we, we already, we already uh, understand this here. When we're speaking of dhan, like we speak of, you know, husna dhan, su'a dhan, we're talking about something that's a little... that <clears throat> oh no can you hear me can you see me now can somebody nod sometimes i can't tell because everyone's like in fasting brain mode so i just see you know frozen heads okay all right <clears throat> so so i was saying that one of the attributes um hold on um, stop share and then bring it right back inshallah 
Well, I think both computers crashed. No, we're good. Okay. So we're saying one attribute is, is to have choshuo. Another is to have this consciousness that you are going to be facing a law. And I was suggesting a difference between intellectual awareness. So if you ask a common Muslim, are you going to have to face a law? The answer is going to be yes. When we're talking about the level of dhan, think about where that feels inside yourself. This is the same place where suspicion feels. It's something not in your mind. It's something deeper than suspicion. Likewise, an optimism about someone or a hope about someone. So we speak of husnavan, suavan. So husnavan is to have a good, you know, a good default opinion of someone. Suavan is to have a, a negative default opinion. But try to feel where that's located. That's located closer to your heart. Okay. And so, so we're saying a second part for me to benefit from sabr and salah is to have this consciousness inside. I'm going to be meeting Allah. This language I find to be very, very fascinating. Okay, it's not facing Allah in the sense that I'm going to be held to account. I'm meeting my nourisher. Okay. So, so to help really frame this, think about, okay, suppose you know, you're, you're at work or you have your job and <clears throat> you get paid through direct deposit. Okay. So you're working, inshallah, you have the privilege where it just even goes straight into your bank account. Okay. Now, suppose it's a little bit different that you're at work and someone's going through the office and delivering the paycheck to each person. Okay. Now think about how different the experience is if you're working and the president of the company gives you your check. It's like a type of honor. Okay. And so here, when we're speaking of Allah as Rabb, okay, far above any CEO, okay? that, that this goes again different than when we speak of, in the first command, we said it's the abd of your rab. We said, imagine how different it is, different it is if it says be the abd of your malik or your malik. So here again, it's your rab. And so if you want to derive benefit from your salah and your sabr, have this internal consciousness that you're going to be meeting your rab. So this is not a threat, this is a hope. If it said you're going to be facing your accounting before the judge, that becomes almost a threat. You know? But here you're going to be meeting Allah. And think back to even in the first course we said, of all the pleasures a human can experience, you know, in this world and beyond, the highest pleasure is the pleasure in paradise of seeing Allah. There is nothing higher than that. Okay. So then what are we saying? Uh, a way to benefit from sabr and salah is the promise of what is on the other side. That if I do this, I have now come a step closer to meeting Allah. If I do this with this humble devotion, I'm getting closer, a step closer to meeting Allah. And then the last part, okay that you know you're going to be returning to him. Okay. And so read this a couple of ways. One, from a dunya perspective, anything else that I do in this dunya is temporary. Okay. Anything that I can spend my time with in this dunya is temporary. So I'm from Chicago, and tonight, in a couple hours, is going to be part three and four, three and four of the Michael Jordan documentary. And that has been on my mind for the past seven days. 
Washington. And that is going to take place right after Iftar. Good. Actually, what I've DVR'd it. And then in, you know, home Tarabi time. And so even that will be a moment in my mind where I'll think, okay, I could watch this right now. It's on the DVR. I can watch it later. Okay. Or I can worship my creator. <laughs> okay. So, so the, the choice doesn't really sound all that difficult, inshallah, you know, as much as I want to crack more jokes about it. But the point is that at one level, anything in this dunya that can give me any sort of joy, pleasure, or anything I might uh, put my effort into is temporary. It's all going to get erased. Okay. And so what are we saying? So focus on the things not on, that are temporary. You focus on the things that are permanent. Okay. So we're saying at the very, very lowest level, the fact that we're going to be returning to him, we're saying, hey, what am I going to work on in this world that's going to stick around? This is something that I always find peculiar, especially when you hear about celebrities who passed away. And, and so, because, you know, of my other work that, you know, I've spent a lot of time with celebrities and such, you know, in the, in the, the film Hollywood type of thing. And when you watch their lives, very rarely are you ever going to meet a celebrity who has a wholesome, consistently healthy life. I mean, it seems like Tom Hanks is the only person. Okay? And, and so now there's that funny news story about how Tom Hanks's blood is going to be used to help find a vaccine for coronavirus. But aside from that, just about any celebrity you can mention, regardless of how perfect their, 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 their uh, public image is, is usually uh, a story of someone who is either deeply insecure, has all kinds of dysfunctions in their lives, where if you met them face to face, you wonder that they even know how to tie their shoes. This has been the case with the overwhelming majority of celebrities I've ever met, right? Even though they might be geniuses in their art. But then I find myself thinking that, all right, uh, you know, people who might be sacrificing things like family for their goals, their professional goals, whether it's uh, in media or something else, and then you die, and you have all these trophies, all these awards, but you die, then what's the point? Okay. So the point of the, what we're saying is you want to shift from things that are temporary and will be erased by history to things that are permanent. And ultimately, that we are going to return to him. We spoke about how, how the teaching, inna lillahi wa inna ilayhi raji'un, which comes about 100 ayahs from now, is something that we say when we lose something, uh, like a loved one, or you're trying to find something, like you lost your keys. But this is also a statement of hope. And so putting... and Salah not only are sabr and salah things that we are obligated for, not only are they of benefit to uh, life. Am I frozen again? Can someone shake their head or something? I'm not frozen. Some of you are saying I'm frozen, some of you are not. You're, you're back now. Oh, okay. Um, I was probably just ranting about something. So I don't know if you lost anything important. Okay. But what we're saying here with these, these two ayahs is that for me to derive benefit from sabr and salah, all I have to do is do them. Okay? Then inshallah, I will benefit the akhirah. To derive further help in this dunya, then I need these three attributes. Uh, humble devotion, um, this, this deep hope, consciousness that I'm going to be meeting Allah, and then also the return to him. So one of the most common questions I get is, how do you derive khushua in salah? 
And, and so an answer to that, which we, I think we've already seen in the previous course, comes around Ayah 109 in Surah Al-Isra. So what is it here? They're falling on their faces, crying in our language. You do sajda as a key to increase khushu. So one way to increase khushu is to keep doing sajda. And that fits in terms of the narrative because shaitan, the accursed shaitan, refused to do a sajda and then he hid behind arrogance. And here you do, you keep doing sajdas. So I will also have students who they know they're supposed to pray, but they can't bring themselves to pray. And depending upon what they can get themselves to do, sometimes someone who's at zero and can't bring themselves to do wudu or to get up, uh, then what we're saying, then what I might advise that person is just keep doing sajda at each of those prayer times. No wudu, no nothing, just drop and do sajda. And then we build up um, uh, from there. Of course, I had one student who was literally praying zero and, and then I said, we tried, okay, can you do this? No. Can you do this? No, probably not. Can you do this? Probably not. I said, okay, can you do such this? And then he asked, are you allowed to do that? I said, man, you're not praying at all. What, what, what is, uh, you know, that's, uh, you're at zero. You're trying to improve. What is the effect of the mention of weeping? So here the context, and you can, you can uh, I don't know how to backtrack in this. Um, here it's speaking of ch uh, people of the book who when they, they see this book and they recognize it as truth, and then out of their sincerity, it causes them to, to come to tears. Okay. And so if you can cry, Basically saying that if one goes through only the ritualistic actions without yearning to seek spiritual benefit is a source of the children of Israel's ungratefulness. No, uh, I am saying, uh, frozen again. You're back. You went for about 30 seconds. Okay, sorry. I've been, I've been having problems in, in the previous class as well. Okay, so uh, Basir, hopefully you got uh, 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 my answer to your question. Okay, Ahant, yes. So is this the source of the children of Israel's ungratefulness and misbehavior? I'm suggesting not necessarily except the, the conduct of their scholars. That we said uh, that the tragic flaw, the big tragic flaw was a lack of gratitude. And then part two was that you have two populations of people that if they're upright and wholesome, the whole population is wholesome. And upright, if they're corrupt, the whole population is corrupt. And so here, we have a hint of the corruption of the, of the Jews of Medina in the sense that they are not embracing the prophet, peace be upon him, and thus it's going to have consequences on their followers. But as far as the, uh, the, the children of Israel, meaning the time of Musa, peace be upon him, that it'll be uh, a little bit different as we'll get to, inshallah. Any other questions about anything at all? How is being humbly submissive not the opposite of arrogance if it is a cure and vaccine for it? Um, it's not entirely wrong to speak of, of Hushu as the opposite of arrogance, but 
I'm trying to, uh, I don't know how to describe that they have different shapes in terms of how they operate. So the opposite of gratitude is ingratitude. That I think would make sense. But remember way back when we were doing Al-Fatiha, I was saying that jealousy is a form of ingratitude. And so that is in a way an opposite of gratitude or a consequence of lack of gratitude. And then I said, jealousy is a form of anger. And so thus we are saying anger like fire or gratitude like water are sort of not opposites, but they're in battle against each other. And so, so you know how I often draw a spectrum, you have hope at one end and fear at the other end. This would not be arrogance versus choshua though, uh, but it is a treatment for it. I wish I, I had better vocabulary on how to, how to explain the, 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 the contrast. Is Hushua awe due to feeling the presence of Allah? Hushua includes that as well, yes. Hey everybody, remember me? Okay. Uh, actually, both computers crashed this time. So. Olfot um, uh, uh, says, increase Hushu by doing such the, uh, what about being focused and not distracted while being, while praying? Okay. So, so how do I help my process of being focused while praying? Uh, chances are this early in Ramadan, it's going to be very hard to be focused while praying unless you focus on one specific thing, which is your hunger. Okay. And so, so what I'm saying is that, okay, I didn't freeze again. Did I? Can someone nod? Frozen? Frozen? Okay. No, it looks like I'm not frozen. Okay. Good, Michelle. All right. So, so... Uh, uh, a step towards having focus in prayer is not to try to control your thinking okay? um, unless you have that level of control of your thinking where you can actually control your thinking. Most of us, our thoughts are going all over the place, right? And so when we pray, our thoughts are on everything. But if you focus on your yearning when you pray. Okay? So let's say you're going through a horrendous difficulty, like you have a loved one who is, who is, who is seriously ill. And it's very easy to have this deep yearning, you know, for, for in your prayers to Allah for a cure for this loved one. Okay. So you focus on that yearning. And so one of the blessings of fasting is 
the feeling of hunger that you have right now, like the pangs of hunger that you have, focus on that and try to make that a yearning for everything. And then when you make your dua, make it with that yearning. So as opposed to making your dua intellectually, you know, Ya Allah, please forgive me and please forgive everyone and grant me the best of this life and the hereafter and forgive all the Muslims. Okay, that you should do anyway. But when you do it from a place of yearning, then it's automatically more sincere. And your yearning will override your thinking. So it takes practice to get into the habit of it, but that is a way to develop focus in your prayer, inshallah. Um, so are you saying the, the direct opposite of arrogance would be ingratitude? Now, the direct opposite of arrogance would be humility. But I'm saying humility is not necessarily khushu'ah. Because even humility, uh, how do we translate humility or how do we define humility in our culture? So humility in greater culture is often, you know, that you regard yourself as low. That's not our culture. Humility in our culture is that you're objectively assessing yourself and you're not requiring people to treat you at your level. Okay. So back to Michael Jordan, who happens to be on my mind these days. The... Uh, Maybe read other articles about him today. <laughs> Why? Anyway, so so uh, suppose he he says I am objectively the greatest player in the history of basketball, right? Someone like Lath will be like, no, it's LeBron James. But the point is, because he's from Ohio, um, the the point is that if he required us to hold him in that level of reverence, then it is not humble. If he is objectively saying that about himself, but he's not requiring us to hold him at that level of reverence, then it is humble. So this is where I always give the example of uh, one of my favorite scholars, Shah Waliullah, Steph Curry? Seriously? Okay. So Shah Waliullah, his name is something literally like Ahmed uh, uh, bin Abdurrahim, right? Uh, Abdurrahim. So, so... Uh, he titles himself Shah Waliullah, okay? the king of the awliyas of Allah. That's his title he gives himself. I even like some of your grins. Okay, And then he also titles himself the Qutb of the era. So in, in, in terms of some schools of spirituality, that you have this spiritual hierarchy of upwards of maybe 36 people and their spirituality is what the whole world rests on in terms of spirituality, their connection with Allah. And they rest on 12, who then rest on the one. Okay. And so he's claiming to be the qutub of his era, okay. which sounds like just about the most arrogant thing a person can possibly be saying in religious circles. And then he goes on to being one of the most influential scholars in the past 400 years. Okay. So... Did he have the goods to back it up? He is not the only person in our history to make such claims. Uh, but the point is that if he's requiring us to hold him to that level, um, then it is not humble. But if in his objective assessment, that's what he is. He's saying, this is what I am. Then, But you know how you treat him is more just the normal expectations of character and such. Then that is still Humble. Uh, Imam al-Ghazali also made a similar claim about himself in his era. Yes. Okay. Okay. Uh, any other questions? Steph Curry, seriously? Okay. I'm assuming the sajdas of the hypocrites did not increase them in Hoshu. Wonderful point. Otherwise, their hypocrisy would have resolved itself. Another wonderful point. 
And we mentioned earlier that the hypocrite is essentially doing sujud to themselves. How do we identify aspects of that in our prayer? And what does it mean in an effort to focus our thoughts? Okay. Uh, one of the nice things about being in quarantine is that it's very easy or much easier, depending upon how much space you have. Obviously, I'm speaking from a point of privilege. Um, it's much easier to do acts of worship that nobody else knows about. So if no one else can know about it, then it's fair to say that this is not for any other purpose except for a law. Okay. Unless you want to someday later tell, oh, oh, I've done this and I've done this and I've done this. Right. And so that is one way to take benefit from all the destruction that is taking place from the COVID um, is that in your solitude, again, depending upon how much space you have, um, is you're doing these acts of worship and I mean, it's different if your family knows, right? I mean, your family's not gonna be impressed by you. Um, uh, is to do your acts of worship um, during this time. Yeah. And then uh, uh, how do we identify acts of prayer? So like, okay, so so for example, this is uh, the ayah near the end of the Quran, you know, waylil musalleen. And, and so, you know, woe to those people who pray and what's the next ayah? They pray just to be seen. That's why I'm saying that uh, when you're in a position where nobody can see, I mean, you can do five rakats, well, not five, you can do four rakats, you can do a hundred rakats, and nobody sees it. And so increase in your privacy. And that gives us a hint about the value of the hajjud, right? The hadith I always like to quote attributed to Anas bin Malik, who says in the numbers, uh, I forget a little bit, he says that the Prophet, peace be upon him, is saying that the prayers that are done in my mosque right, the Haram and Medina, are equal to 100,000 of your normal prayers. If you do them in front of the Kaaba, they're equal to 200,000 of your normal prayers. And then the prayers you do on the battlefield, no, I'm not calling people to battle, the, people, the prayers you do on the battlefield equal a million, alf alf, of your normal prayers. And then more valuable than all those are the ones that you do in the middle of the night in your home in the darkness. I don't know if darkness is part of the ayah, right? So if the hajjud is that valuable. Okay. And part of the wisdom we can gather from this is the fact that no one sees you doing the hajjud. Okay. That's literally between you and Allah. Again, your family members, but like I said, family members don't get impressed. Okay. So, so the point being that uh, the key is to do acts that nobody else can see. It is not wrong to do acts that other people can see because it may inspire them. So we're even taught the best type of giving is where your right hand doesn't know what your left hand is doing. But if you giving is going to inspire other people, either out of hope or even out of competition, then that can be a good thing to advertise. Okay. But it's often better not to. Yeah. Seeing yourself. Um, uh, Laith, can you explain, expand that point? I'm not uh, understanding. Yeah, so you're saying like in Tahajjud when you're in complete privacy, that that's almost like an antidote to like hypocrisy in the prayer. So what about just like the sense of ojub or of uh, seeing, like I, I would assume the hypocrites when, uh, I mean, they could still be hypocrites when they're praying privately because they see themselves praying and they hold that in regard. Um, yeah, uh, but I don't think it can be sustained. Uh, I don't think that for the long term you can sustain uh, that type of prayers. I mean, there's those stories that we have. There's this famous story 
of, of the guy, the sheikh, who, who would always make it to the front row of prayer. And then his buddy fellow sheikhs decide to tease him because that's what they do. And they all crowd in the front row and, and he couldn't pray there. And then he like, and I'm messing up the story, but then he started crying and he remade 40 years worth of prayers because he realized the only, the primary reason or part of the reason he was doing it was to be in the front row and for people to see him. Yeah. That's beyond anything I imagine myself ever having the, the fortitude of doing. But so is it sustainable? I'm not going to call that person a hypocrite, but I think it's, I'm skeptical that it's sustainable for a long period of time for someone to do acts of worship that uh, can uh, impress themselves. You know, short period of time, a short period of time might even be a couple of years. I'm speaking of long period of time, you know, like in the decades. That would be, that would be my, my thoughts on that. Uh, I think it all comes down to intentions. Yeah. Uh, at some point I'll make a list of the answers, the, the, the answer, every single Islam question, intentions, balance, context, you, know, you must have a balance, right? Or we have to look at the context, you know, those things. So yes, Sadi, you're correct. It does come down to intentions and I'm teasing here a little bit, but the, but the point is the, the, how do we, how do we keep our intentions sustained? That comes with long, long-term practice in Shalom. What is the point of impressing yourself? Uh, uh, so, so essentially, uh, there are some people for whom that's how their narcissism operates. Uh, I would suggest that a good example of that would be a modern-day pharaoh who is impressed by himself about everything, like when telling people to ingest, inject themselves with Lysol. So there are some people who do derive uh, uh, some sort of exhilaration by impressing themselves. Any other questions or thoughts about anything at all? Clarification from yesterday. You mentioned Jews, uh, for Jews, everything was given in dunya. They required to earn the akhirah. What about for Christians, Muslims? Could you please comment again? So, so what we're speaking there, this I'm essentially taking from an ayah we're going to see tomorrow, inshallah where they're going to be told, and one of our readings is going to be that uh, in dunya, the children of Israel were given everything, every miracle, every luxury, even food was coming down from the sky. And, but they have to earn their akhira. And, and so that applies to all of us, yes. Uh, that all of us have to earn our akhira, although we hope that Allah Ta'ala will give us mercy, something higher than what we have earned. Uh, but the point is that uh, for them, everything was manifesting outside right in front of them, right? So even according to some narrations, they didn't even, their clothes would not even get worn out. Their clothes would grow with them. Or when they're in the desert, there's a cloud above them the entire time. And, and so all of us, um, we still do believe that our rizq is there, but it's hidden. We have to find it. For them, everything is right out of the open. But then for all of us in the akhirah, uh, everything there has to be earned or better than that is the mercy of Allah. I hope that makes sense. Any other questions, thoughts, reflections? Uh, uh, yesterday we read an ayah. Uh, Allah said that, uh, uh, that remember the time when uh, I rem uh, rem remember the my blessing, yeah. my favor unto you and that I... Uh, 
uh, I made you uh, uh, I mean, I give you, I, I made you over all the other uh, nations. Okay, so we haven't had is, that idea yet. That idea will be tomorrow, but keep going, keep going. Uh, so is is that, are these two separate things? So the favor is different and that Allah made them uh, over others. Is that separate? Are these two separate things? So the favors above all mankind, inshallah, would be these miracles that he's giving them. And then the favors through their story will be different, right? He saves them from the Pharaoh and then he does this and he does that, right? Because prior to being saved from the Pharaoh, they're living in slavery. And so none of these things were happening yet. Does that make sense? Or did I misunderstand your question? Uh, you're still in my Yeah, yeah, that, that makes But But that we already read that I, uh, uh, yeah, yeah, um, uh, we probably, I think we made mention of it, but I think officially we haven't yet gotten to the ayah yet. Okay. Any other questions about anything? And I apologize for my computer crashing repeatedly. Like I said, you know, when I'm not taking my naps, it's taking its naps. It is as though I am one with my computer. Yeah. No other questions? Okay. I wanted to ask something from the Renaissance class question for both you and Adan. You can answer here. If you find it appropriate right now, uh, Javed Ramadi has tried to look at the Dean differently. What do you think of his work? I think Javed Ramadi is another person to, to, to consider in terms of his approach. He and, and Isfar Ahmed were both students of Maududi and who sort of went their, their separate ways. One of the, the wonderful things about, about uh, Molana Maududi is, is how many people he's produced, how many big power hitter in terms of thinkers he's produced. And so those are two. Ramadi has been getting more popularity uh, in the West uh, as of late. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, Amin, Asan, Islahi, Yusuf Islahi are, are two other ones. Uh, many. And, and that's part of the, the, you know, when you evaluate people by their fruits, the fruits that Malana Madhuri has produced, mashallah, has, uh, has been uh, in their various circles have been very, very amazing, especially in terms of the study of the Quran. Uh, so Ramadi has been getting popularity in, in Western Muslim circles uh, as well. I have a cousin who who's, himself is based in Karachi, who is very close to, to Javed Ramadi. And, 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 uh, and so uh, I appreciate his, his approach um, in a very, very, what do we call it, like a tempered uh, approach to the Quran. Uh, sometimes if we evaluate someone according to the fringes of their thoughts, uh, sometimes I find um, his, some of his opinions uh, uh, in terms of interpretation of hadith to be questionable. He doesn't, I could be misreading him, but I don't feel that he gives, um, um, uh, or I'm not, I'm not yet understanding his approach to hadith uh, as though it's Quran and hadith, which is common how you imagine it, but a point I've been making is not the Quran or hadith, uh, equal to Hadith, but that the Prophet is inseparable from, from the Quran. Uh, but I think he's definitely worth exploring. You know? uh, uh, as a person, uh, my cousin speaks of him as, as someone of immense humility and, and upright character. Um, so I'd say explore and, and see what you think. You know? I mean, that's generally my answer for, for, for a lot of those questions is, is explore and, and drive your own thoughts and chill on.
Uh, Hamdi has made some controversial statements about a lot of things. Uh, I, uh, 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 Sadi, if you can name some, because I think some of those seem to be more on the periphery of his thoughts as opposed to central um, um, uh, concepts. But uh, I also, I haven't paid as much attention. So, I mean, there are uh, people within more of the traditional outlook. So we spoke about the school of Deoband. They're definitely not fans of him. You know, so he is a revisionist thinker. But I'd say explore. I think uh, one of his uh, difference with Dr. Israr was that um, that Dr. Israr said that you have to struggle for, for, you know, if you're in a, you know, in a Muslim society to have a Muslim government. Uh, but uh, Ramdi said, uh, or Dr. Sar said that you have to do it anywhere you are. And Ramdi said, no, when, when people have enough uh, Iman, they will come and they will, uh, they will do it themselves. So that, I mean, it, to some extent, maybe that looks like it's, uh, it's, it's, that's how it will happen eventually that because when you don't have people who are, who have that Iman, how are they going to follow the laws to the full spirit? So they do have point that might be overlapping. Yeah, that's, uh, that's beyond me. Uh, Omer is saying one of his recent statements is that you can virtually pray behind an Imam. Uh, I would also be uh, uh, also uh, curious uh, how far would he take that? So, so that is one of the arguments that's given uh, for women who are praying in the same physical space facing a television. And so the pushback is how is that different from praying in a different location? Uh, and, and there are a few people who do, uh, it still seems to be the minority of people who are arguing that in like today's quarantine, you can do tarawi, taravi, uh, you know, in your own home, following someone on, online. Uh, that's a minority Actually, Umar, that is, you know, uh, sorry to butt in, but uh, if you go to Makkah, especially, you know, there are some hotels uh, where they have a musalla which basically is following the imam of Kaaba. And if you now see the uh, recent construction of uh, the Masjid al-Haram, Kaaba is not visible from many parts of the Masjid al-Haram where the people are actually praying behind the imam. And, uh, and if you're praying in the musalla of the hotel, which is completely cut off, um, there's no visual contact even like, you know, let's say, token visual contact where you could probably say, okay, there's a space where you could potentially peep through and see the Kaaba. So uh, the, uh, the precedence or the, uh, the pra established practice is already there. Mm. It's just that we, we are lagging behind in uh, taking, uh, taking the concept. It is a dangerous concept, though. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, I'm cautious about the lagging behind uh, part of it, but uh, uh, but I think you are raising a really fascinating example that all right, I can be in the hotel, uh, and and so Saudi is saying those are declared to be a, a shoe part of the haram. Uh, that's probably part of the argument, but uh, the pushback would still be that you can potentially have much of a bunch of rows of emptiness. You know, you have the people who are praying facing the Kaaba. And then a whole bunch of empty lines. And then, you know, if you're if they say it's legit to pray in your room, uh, then I think that's that's uh, uh, fascinating. Not all hotels allow that. Okay. Uh, but I mean, it's definitely uh, going to be a question that's not going to be resolved with this quarantine. Uh, I, what I expect will probably happen 
you know, if we have this conversation 15, 10, 10, 15, 20 years from now, we will have a lot of people who do pray online uh, or pray following someone online in a very different location. I mean, of course, you know, if you really want to have fun, you know, if you're in America, just follow the fasting times for the people in, in, in Mecca. I mean, they're probably breaking their fast right now. You know, they probably actually broke it like four hours ago. No, but but that yeah, those not to belabor the point. Go for it. Sorry, not to belabor the point, Umar, but um, just uh, responding to the sister's point. Yeah. The, this observation about hotel was uh, in Mecca Hilton, and I'm speaking at a time of 1998. Wow. When I did the Hajj, yeah. and that and I, that's what I found was very very fascinating because this Musal, and then uh, as you say, there's empty space. Uh, there is, and then there's the, uh, the, 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 comp, the compound space of the, uh, of the Masjid al-Haram coming up. So this is 1998 that they were, they had allowed this. So, yeah. well, okay. So when you're saying they had allowed this, you're saying mm -hmm. that it was considered, it was openly considered to be acceptable to pray in your hotel room. Oh yeah, absolutely. I prayed, uh, I prayed in that Musalla behind the Imam. He's like, uh, I, didn't, the, I mean, I no, went to no, Bakr, but I just prayed in my hotel room. Yeah. So. No, no, no. Uh, um, so there were people who were basically coming down, and instead of walking across to the uh, the Masjid al Haram, because, uh, they were late or something. They just went into the musalla. They formed the uh, the prayer rows. And mm -hmm. okay, I mean, uh, I do think that's fascinating. And of course, the computer nerd in me is probably wondering what the Wi-Fi speed was back then. You know, it was probably like a ninety-six hundred baud, which is a joke that none of you will get except if you're my age or older. But uh, so I think uh, that's uh, uh, that. I mean, technological developments are absolutely going to be raising these questions. Um, and I do think we're going to have a whole lot of people that are going to go into the school of these, these, um, these distant um, um, prayers. Uh, but yeah, I think it's fascinating that this is 22 years ago that, that, that you saw this happening. So, so. Any other questions? So Omer is saying he also said during your namaz, meaning during your salah, if your internet gets disconnected, you can continue and catch up when your internet is back. That's fascinating. Uh, uh, I'd be I'd be curious about the the line of thinking, the reasoning process that he's going through. Uh, uh, that's that's more the stuff that that interests me. It's not the conclusion, but it's the it's the thought process. And so effectively, what I'm saying is that for, for various scholars, I can sort of understand their, their legalistic reasoning, either from within the tradition or their own methods, uh, but I'm not as familiar with how he is coming to conclusions. And uh, better make up those prayers. I think that's probably Dr. Mahan's advice to Dr. Kazi. Hajj Zoom edition might be around the corner. Any other questions at all? I mean, so that would be, imagine the Sufis of the 900s, like Halaj, who is said to be doing tawaf around his house, and we're all doing tawaf around the Kaaba, but it's just a digital Kaaba. You know? Okay. And these are similar reservations with the micro. Ah, yeah. Microphone is a very, very good example of that. You know? And that could be some of the basis of the uh, of of the situation that Dr. Kazi saw is that you're hearing the uh, the Imam. I wonder if that was part of the logic. You know. Any other questions about anything at all? Okay, 
we will stop right here. I gotta, whoa, I'm already running late for my my next class. Okay, subhanakallahumma bihamdika nashadu illa ilaha illa anta nastafirka natubi ilayk. Subhanakallahumma bihamdika nashadu illa ilaha illa anta nastafirka natubi ilayk. Subhanakallahumma bihamdika nashadu illa ilaha illa anta nastafirka natubi ilayk. Wa akhirat da'wana an alhamdulillahi rabbil alameen. May Allah tell the word you all, inshallah, and we'll see you tomorrow. Wassalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah.